Welcome to a special edition of Veterans Voice. I'm Ted Robertson. Veterans Voice presented by USAA is coming to you from the Optum Podcast Studio here on the campus of Mount Carmel Veterans Service Center located in Colorado Springs, Colorado. 2023 marks the 50th anniversary of Operation Homecoming, the 1973 airlift during which more than 500 prisoners of war were brought home from Vietnam. Many of them were pilots and crew who'd been shot down and captured. A few years prior, one of those pilots and another one who did not survive the aftermath failed in their attempt to escape from the annex of Vietnamese prison camp located near Hanoi. In this podcast, we talk with George Hayward, author of The Party Dolls, an account of those events from men who were there. George, uh, glad to have you here. Welcome to The Veteran's Voice. Thanks for having me, Ted. It's really good to be here. Truly a privilege. You've written uh, uh, just a stunning account of a failed escape attempt. Talk a little bit about that. Then I want to circle back to background about you and how you find yourself here and on a speaking tour and a book signing tour. Uh, Let's talk about the party dolls a little bit. And then we also want to talk a good bit about Operation Homecoming. It's something that happened back in 1973. And if you talk to people who are younger than a certain age, that very significant event is simply lost. During the Vietnam War in the 1960s, the North Vietnamese shot down and captured several hundred closer, I want to say over 600, 700 American uh, aviators, fighter pilots, navigators, air crew, and held them as prisoners of war during during the war. And Operation Homecoming was the airlift operation in 1973, February and March, to bring them all home. Um, in May 1969, two American POWs four years before the war was over, four years before Operation Homecoming, two American POWs, John Dramisi and Ed Atterbury, after more than a year of planning, attempted to escape from one, one of the Hanoi prisons, a prison the Americans nicknamed the Annex. Uh, they went out over the wall on a, on a Saturday night, and they were recaptured the next day. Ed Atterbury died in torture. Now, if you go look up this escape in the history books, everything I just told you is about all you would ever find. The Party Dolls is the first book to go back, interview all the POWs who were involved in the effort, and reconstruct the entire story, how they did it, the conflicts involved, the challenges they faced, and put together the whole story start to finish. George, you've taken a good long while to write and then ultimately publish this book. Let's go back to the very beginning when you found your way into the military. Sure. Um, I served in the Air Force, enlisted 1987 to 1999. In 1990, I, I trained into the public affairs career field, and my first boss in public affairs out at what was then called Falcon Air Force Station in Colorado, east of Colorado Springs. Um, it's now Schriever Space Force Base. But back then, the chief of public affairs was a man named Bill Baugh. He was a retired colonel, 06, retired fighter pilot, and spent six years as a POW. And he used to he used to give um, uh, speaking engagements where he'd talk with great eloquence and humor about his experiences as a POW. And part of his, his talk was a very brief mention of this escape because he was one of the men in the cell who helped the two escapees plan it. Um, I became almost fixated on that story. There's some tremendous moral conflict, um, military orders conflicting, 
there that drew me to the story. And so for years, I kind of researched it, dug around a little bit. Finally, in the late 90s, I actually started doing formal interviews. Bill and Mike McGrath helped me connect to all the living POWs at the time uh, who were involved. And I started doing interviews. I did some of these interviews while I was still on active duty uh, writing for Airman Magazine. But most of them I did after I got out of the service in 99. And I started putting together the book. And then life got in the way. The book went on hold in my mind and my computer on my desk for more than a decade. And it wasn't until 2017 that I actually sat down, started writing it over from scratch, got serious about it, and published it a couple of years later. And it's gotten um, a pretty good response. Yeah, it has. I haven't quit my day job yet, but um, it's won a few literary awards. It, it's won uh, awards for military history and nonfiction military from the Best Indie Book Awards, the Indepre- Independent Press Awards, and it was a final for the National Indie Excellence Awards and Independent Authors Networks Awards. So, yeah, there's some nice hardware hanging up in the office. And uh, uh, just a preview of where this book is available. Sure. It's available on Amazon as both an ebook and and paperback. You can get it as a paperback on barnesandnoble.com, as an ebook on Apple Books, and locally in Colorado Springs, it's available at Tattered Cover and Poor Richards. Wonderful. And you just uh, have done uh, book signings in those places, if Tattered I remember cover, right. It was yep. Tattered Cover. Tattered Cover. And talk about the speaking engagement you are fresh off of from the Air Force Academy. Our friend Dean Miller helped set that up. Yeah, that was a, what a great event they, they had. They invited me to come up and talk to cadets um, about the escape and about Operation Homecoming, and I was able to uh, bring Mike McGrath with me, and deservedly so. He kind of turned into the star of the show. Um, you know, the cadets were, were, were happy to listen to me talk about the escape and, and, and have me sign their books, but really Mike was the star of the show, talking about his experiences. And these are all things that they, as future military leaders, could face themselves. So it was a really important learning environment for them, a fun, wonderful opportunity. Having lunch with the cadets was fantastic. What a great experience that was. Um, and just a, it was a great day up there. They just treated us so well, Dean and the rest of the outreach team. They were just fantastic. And uh, in the post for this podcast, we're going to include some of the photographs and some of the video from that event along with links to get the book. And we might even do a little excerpt from the book because you narrated it, George. You have a a wonderful way uh, in the audio book of presenting that horrible story. Thank you. I was, I was fortunate uh, to hold on when I did those interviews so many years ago. I recorded them on micro cassette, and some of the tapes degraded over the years, and you can hear the qu- audio quality isn't all that great. But as you mentioned, there is a 10-episode podcast on the book of the book on my website, georgehaywardauthor.com, and you can listen to it's essentially an audio book version with the actual interviews from the POWs, their actual quotes as the quotes that are in the book. And then in three of the episodes, we have bonus content. Um, One episode, I'm joined by the military historian who edited the book for me. And in two others, I'm joined by POWs who are involved in the story. The interesting thing about this era in our country's history, the Vietnam War, is that while we are on the cusp of starting to lose that generation, they're in their 70s, they're still with it, they're still with us. And that leads me then to Mike McGrath. What is it like sitting next to a man who has survived that kind of hell on earth? I will tell you that being friends 
or having the opportunity to know or meet or talk to former POWs is is quite humbling, you know. Um, in in my dedication for the party dolls, I dedicated it to my old boss, Bill Baugh. Um, I said, for Bill Baugh, who taught me, there's no such thing as a bad day. And what I love about these men, what I love being around them for is the little things. The little things in life that they appreciate, the feeling of the sun on your face, a, a nice breeze, a pleasant cup, a pleasant conversation with someone, a nice cup of coffee, the little things, the little freedoms that we just take for granted with every breath. They treasure with every breath. And on the flip side of that, it's also the little things they have. Bill Baugh had an amazing ability to not sweat the small stuff, as the cliche goes. I remember coming into, into his office, you know, as a 20-something-year-old. And, you know, when you're 20 years old, your life is filled with melodrama and minor petty petty grievances and whatnot and you you come into work in a bad mood and you're 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 complaining and moaning and and he goes what you got and i go off on my little rant and he would just look at me and laugh and say there's no such thing as a bad day get to work (laughs) what do you say to a man who had literally spent a quarter of your life living in a cell not thinking he would ever go home you say yes sir i'm headed back to work with a smile on your face yes sir (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yep. Yes, absolutely. You do. That and is things absolutely. fall into perspective. In our, they do fall into perspective. And absolutely. I'm sure that informed much of how you engage with people throughout the rest of your career. Abs- to this day, it, yeah. it shapes it shapes how I view my life, my world on, on a daily basis every day. Now, George, I've been very fortunate that um, when we met, you gave me a copy of your book. I've listened to the audio side of it. I've read through several of the chapters. And I have to say the theater of the mind gives me chills. Because you talk about the physical space. You talk about how people were divided into groups. You talked about what happened if something uh, didn't work right for the Vietnamese and what they would do. Uh, you, you go into graphic detail about what happened to the people who were involuntarily committed to helping these two men try to escape. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, one of the challenges with the escape itself was the fact that you know, as, as one of the POWs in the book says, you know, I'll give you 50%, maybe even 60% of the chance that you can get out of the cell, get out of the building, get over the wall. And then after that, what are you going to do? You're in Hanoi. You're American. You're an American in Hanoi in the 1960s. You've got nowhere to go. You've got no help. So knowing that they were going to be tortured in any event if these two men went and knowing these two men were going to go, whether they helped them or not, of course you want to help them because most of these men were still uh, technically missing in action at the time of this escape. They weren't necessarily known as POWs. So this might have been the only way they could get their names out there to let people know they were still alive. And so that was a huge impetus for helping them is knowing if, if I'm going to get tortured anyway, I may as well do my, you know, get them out of here so people know I'm here. Why were they there? How did they get there? Well, all of them were shot down in combat. Um, most people have heard of the Hanoi Hilton. It's, it's the most famous of the Vietnamese prisons. Um, but there were actually several in the Hanoi area. So as the war wore on from the, from the 60s into the early 70s, they were moved around and shuffled quite a bit. Uh, the prison where this escape took from was called the Annex because it was an addition to another prison called the Zoo. So it was the, the Zoo Annex. And it was actually an old uh, French movie studio from back when the French ruled Vietnam. The Vietnamese converted it to a prison. 
So the annex itself um, held what I guess you would call general aviators, fighter pilots, their backseaters, high-profile uh, prisoners, high-ranking prisoners like McCain and, and, and Admiral Stockdale were held at the Hanoi Hilton. The annex was where general aviators were held. They were almost most of the senior ranking officer in the entire camp among 80-something POWs in the annex was a captain. In fact, 60, 70 percent of them or, you know, 60 or 70 out of the 80-something were captains. Sanitary conditions. Three three buckets for a toilet. Mm -hmm. No privacy. They were in a cell that was roughly 20 feet by 18 feet. Nine of them. So five wooden pallets on the floor with rice mats for a bed on one side of the room, four wooden pallets with rice mats on the other side of the room for beds. And in the corner of the, of the floor side was the three buckets that they did their duty in. So you lived in the same room where you had to do everything, everything, everything. Yep. What did they eat? How did they survive? They lived on rice and vegetable soup. You know, as, as Mike McGrath was talking, telling the cadets yesterday, you know, they'd boil, the, the Vietnamese would feed them essentially water that had been boiled with cabbage in it, and that's your cabbage mm-hmm. soup, and then you'd get some rice, and you got two meals a day like that for years. Bill Baugh used to say he came home at his fighting weight. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, uh, the images uh, from those years. Yeah, they were all gaunt, skeletal, malnourished, yeah, all of them. Yeah. You know, again, referring back to Operation Homecoming, it took roughly six weeks to bring 540-some-odd mm-hmm. of those prisoners back. Um, majority of the guys involved in this story ended up coming home. Uh, as a journalist, mm-hmm. you go into great lengths about why it was an advantage to keep the prisoners alive. Describe how you describe the value of an American prisoner to the mind of a Vietnamese soldier. A dead American has no political value. As long as they're alive, they're, they're political pawns. They can be shown for propaganda. They can, you know, you can pressure the U.S. government to, to come to terms with you so you can get them back. There was, there was no value in killing them whatsoever. So, so they were experts in torturing them yeah. to the brink of death without, without killing them. Well, at least they tried not to. The conditions themselves would not kill these people. Right. Uh, they gave them just enough care to keep them alive. Right. Yep. Uh, even a, a very sick prisoner was treated very specially to try to keep them alive. W- were they not? Yeah, they, they received medical care when they needed it. was not a compassionate thing. It was a political thing. Yeah, they, they received medical care when they needed it. Yeah. You know, and, and over the course of their captivity, their, uh, their, their treatment varied. It got better after Ho Chi Minh died in 1969. In fact, one of the ironies of... of of the escape is is one of the prisoners pointed out at the time of the escape they they were being treated better than they had been previously and of course it got worse after the escape until Ho Chi Minh died and then after Ho Chi Minh died they stopped torturing them altogether. I want to go back to the reason behind the escape and and the fact that you talked about there being moral conundrums here. Mm-hmm. Oh that's one of the most important elements of the whole story. You know uh Prisoners, American prisoners of war have a six-article code of conduct they're supposed to adhere to. Article 3 says, I will make every attempt to escape and aid my fellow prisoner in escaping. Article 4 says, in part, I will take no action that will bring harm to my fellow prisoner. So when you've got nine guys in a cell, one guy says, we're obligated to escape. I'm going to escape and you're supposed to help me. And the other eight guys say, 
you have zero chance of success and all of us are going to be tortured in the aftermath, who's right? Are you still obligated to go knowing you, you have zero chance of success? And did he really believe he had a chance of succeeding? He clearly thought he could succeed. So what's the answer? Who is morally right there? And these nine men were trapped in the cell having to figure it out for themselves, as well as in the cell next to them just happened to be the senior ranking officer in the whole camp whose permission they needed to pull off the escape, even though he was only a captain himself and was only the ranking officer in the camp just because he had been a captain longer than anyone else. The decision was made that they were going to attempt an escape, knowing what the consequences could be to themselves and certainly to their fellow prisoners. Well, now there's the plot twist. They had guidance from a senior ranking prisoner from outside the annex that there was to be no escape without outside help. That was Colonel Robbie Risner, who was one of the most famous POWs. Uh, but Robbie, after, after all this had happened, had gone incommunicado. The Vietnamese had hit him away. No one knew where, whether he was alive or dead. And so there was legitimate question whether that order was still valid. The quandary becomes, does he have permission to go or not? And what ended up happening was they went on with the planning, but they didn't have permission to go. And the circumstances of the escape to succeed required a rainy Saturday night when a thunderstorm knocked out power in the camp. And so for a year, they planned for this, and find, but they never had actual formal green light to go. And then one night, they got the perfect conditions. John Dramisi said, I think we should be going tonight. So he climbed up into the ceiling of his cell. They had already figured out how to get up into the ceiling, out of the, out of the building, and then out of the camp. Climbed up into the ceiling of his cell where he could then talk to the cell next door where the senior ranking officer, Connie Troutman, was and told him, this is the perfect condition. I want to go. Connie Troutman said, I'm not giving you permission. If you go, you go without my permission. He said, what's your decision? And John Dramacy said, we're going. And they went. So now you've got that in there. Now, later on, Connie Troutman, you know, told me, in hindsight, he considered what he said to Dramisi a tacit approval because he left it up to him. And John Dramisi told me that if Troutman had said, you can't go, he would not have gone. But because he left it up to him, he chose to go. What was the end game for these two attempted escapees? You know... There's a lot of speculation about the motiva- motivations behind it. Ed Atterbury died in the effort. We'll never really know. Um, one interesting twist in the whole story was while the other guys in the, in the cell were all uh, fighter pilots, or fi- seven fighter pilots and one backseater, um, Ed Atterbury was a spy pilot. He flew the F-4 reconnaissance model, and prior to that had flown the U-2, and it, had flown over Cuba during the Cuban Missile Crisis, but he was shot down in an RF-4, a reconnaissance model of the F-4 fighter, which was the most common U.S. fighter at the time. I personally don't think the North Vietnamese realized he was a spy pilot. 
I think they thought he was a regular F-4 fighter jock. And that's why they held him in the general aviator population instead of with the higher profile prisoners in the, in the Hanoi Hilton. You think about the in- intel he would have had. He would have had detailed knowledge of all the airframes he had flown, their surveillance capabilities, their performance capabilities. He would have been an incredible intelligence asset to, to North, Viet- North Vietnam or the Chinese or the Russians. But here he was being held among prisoners and, you know, among the general aviators. And one of the interesting points in that is to a man, almost no one in his cell could tell you anything about at Atterbury beyond what I've just told you. He was from Texas. He was married, had a couple little kids. Uh, He was a, a telephone lineman before the war. He didn't go to OTS or a service academy. He got his he got his commission through a through a aviation cadet program. Um, he wasn't part of the regular fighter community. So no one really knew him. I, no one knew what motivated him to escape. I personally think he was trying to hide that fact, that he was a spy pilot. John Dramisi, you ask the other men in his, in his cell, they'll all say he was doing it for glory, doing it for a medal, or to say he did. Um, but they not inside his head or heart. He certainly made a solid justification, whether you agree with him or not, he makes a passionate argument for why he's obligated to escape. My mind keeps going back to this odd scene that you depict of one of these people crawling up into the ceiling. Uh, the way they did it was each cell had uh, two vents in the ceiling, um, air vents, and the Vietnamese had barbed wired them over, but um, they were like they, you could open and close them from within, like for air circulation, like you could just turn a lever. And it was almost like a heating vent in your floor where you have the little latch that you, you move it and the vents close or the vents open. It was like that, but it was big enough for a person to fit through. And then the Vietnamese barbed wired over it. So the guys in room six, the escape cell, figured out, they started out standing on each other's shoulders, but they figured out the easier way was they took one of their bed pallets Four guys, on, one on each corner, lifts it up with another guy on it, and now he can stand or be on his knees and use his spoon over a period of time to work that barbed wire loose. And then eventually from there, you can get up into the ceiling. And once they were up into the ceiling, they realized that the wall between the cells up above the ceiling had gaps in it. Mm-hmm. And that way they could communicate into the cell next to them. You described the physical layout of all of this again, in great depth and detail. Mm-hmm. So you get a very vivid image of where these men were living, how they were living, and how they were barely surviving, and how the Vietnamese cared for them just enough to keep them alive for political reasons. Now, the man we're going to talk to in our next podcast was there. Yes. Yeah, Mike McGrath was um, Mike McGrath was a, a Navy pilot who was part of the uh, part of the annex prisoner crew, and he was Connie Troutman's cellmate next door um, in 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 the cell next to the escapees. So he had a front row seat to all the planning. And an interesting twist in it: the cells used to communicate various ways, but one of the ways that uh, these two cells communicated was to pass notes to each other by stuffing them into a crack in the wall between their two outside courtyards. So you go out into your courtyard in the morning to wash your clothes, get your well water, dump your toilet bucket, and you stick a note that you wrote on toilet paper into a crack between two bricks. 
And then when you get put back in your cell and Connie Troutman's cell gets let out into the courtyard adjacent to yours, they go to the same crack from the other side, pull the note out and read it. Um, because of that, because that was the way you pass notes, the ability to write very smallly and very clearly was very important. And each cell had a designated note writer. Mike McGrath was the note writer for room five, Connie Troutman's cell. So Mike was aware of all the planning that was going in coordination that was going back and forth between the two cells. He had a front row view to the, the entire escape. Not to mention he's absolutely, and, and we want to talk about Operation Homecoming for a moment. Mike is the past president, current historian, and board member of NAMPOWS. Uh, that's N-A-M-P-O-W-S. That's the National Brotherhood of Vietnam POWs. There is probably, arguably, no one in the country better qualified to talk in depth detail. You know, you ask me how many prisoners came home or how many did this, how many did that. I'm plugging my memory. He's got a data bank. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, so he's going to be a fantastic source to talk about that kind of thing. George Hayward, fresh off of a uh, visit to the United States Air Force Academy to present to the cadets to tell this story. Uh, about these uh, events in Vietnam. The season we're in is the uh, Operation Homecoming, which took place over a period of about six weeks during 1973, mm -hmm. and uh, right about this time of year to bring 500-plus prisoners of war home. First flight was February 12th, two days ago. And this is uh, the 50th yes. anniversary. Um, wonderfully connected stories and bit of history very significant piece of history that tends to be lost these days. I am not a fan of seeing such things get lost. So I'm glad you're here. I'm glad we're going to have Mike McGrath here to talk about this some more. Uh, give us a few days. We'll all be back together here. And you can get this at Veterans Voice in our um, Heroes and History category, just uh, veteransvoice.us. Go to categories and look for Heroes and History, and you'll find this podcast links to George's book, The Party Dolls, uh, there as well. I urge a read of this book. There aren't many things that I've read that transport me to these places where sweat is running down my nose. I can smell what's coming out of those three buckets. I can taste that horrible soup. I can feel the pain that these people felt. George, uh, you wrote that brilliantly and masterfully. And it's an honor for us to be able to uh, tell people that they should experience what I've experienced and what you've written. Thanks, Ted. I'm truly just humbled to be the man that gets to tell this important story. I'm Ted Robertson. You've been listening to a special edition of the Veterans Voice presented by USAA. We're coming to you from the Optum Podcast Studio here on the campus of Mount Carmel Veterans Service Center in Colorado Springs, Colorado. George Hayward, author of The Party Dolls, joins me along with Mike McGrath, one of the POWs who was actually there in just a few days from now.